0: Let's pray as we come to God's word. Almighty God, we thank you for all that you give us. We thank you, Lord, for these gifts that have been given now and those given through the week. We pray that you might use them for your purposes. Most of all, Lord, though, we thank you for our saviour, your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you gave him, that we might know your mercy, your forgiveness your smile upon us. And so, Father, as we come to this, your word now, would you be with us by your spirit? Help us to see who you are. And help us to rejoice in your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, please do take a seat, and uh, please keep your Bibles open at uh, Exodus 11 and 12. It was the uh, invention of a chemist called Alfred Bird uh, that allowed Queen Victoria's memory to be literally baked into British culture. In 1843, Bird mixed bicarbonate of soda with tartaric acid and starch, making a powder, which, when it became damp, produced bubbles of carbon dioxide. Put it in a cake, and all of a sudden, the result is a much lighter, springier bake. Up until then, uh, most cakes had been a, a rather denser, more biscuity texture. But the new spongy version enabled by Bird's invention, was an instant hit, even at the very highest levels of British society. The Queen herself was a massive fan, serving it to everyone she invited to afternoon tea. And so was born the Victoria Sandwich Cake, or Victoria Sponge. And so from that day until this, every time anyone makes or eats this cake, there's a little reminder of one of the UK's longest reigning monarchs. Woven into the very fabric of British tea time is a tangible, edible reminder of someone who shaped and influenced this country in very significant ways. And as we move on, In the book of Exodus this evening, to reach the climax of the plagues in ancient Egypt, we find something perhaps surprisingly similar happening in the collective life of ancient Israel. You'll remember so far that that all through the story, uh, Yahweh, the God of ancient Israel, has said again and again that he is using the events of the Exodus to reveal who he is to make himself known in this world and and to show us something of of his identity and his character. And nowhere is that more true than in the tenth and and final plague. And yet God is also concerned that his people would remember who he is, that they would be able to look back and, and recall what he had done and be refreshed in their understanding of what he is like. Yahweh wants to bake into the corporate life of his people a reminder of of just what kind of God he is and of just what that means for his people so that generations to come might also see the wonderful truths revealed to that generation in ancient Egypt. And so this this chapter, Exodus 12, is a a strange sort of mixture between descriptive narrative passages telling us what was going on at the time in the first ever Passover. And then interwoven with that narrative are sets of instructions, directions for, for future Passovers. It's almost as though Moses is providing us a live text commentary of events as they happen, explaining their lasting significance even as the ancient Israelites experienced them for the first time. And what an experience that first Passover must have been. Look with me again uh, at what they were asked to do. They were asked to select a lamb and then, verse 6 of chapter 12, take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they're to eat the meat, roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire with the head, legs and internal organs. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some of it is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. What an assault on the senses. This is much more than just a cake with God's name on it. Just imagine the, the bleating as each household cared for their selected lamb. Bleating that brought to an abrupt end at twilight on the 14th day of the month, as each lamb was slaughtered. Not in the, the sterile, aseptic environment that we like to prepare our meat in today, but rather in the reality of butchery in the ancient world. Blood soaking into each white fleece as the knife did its work. And then, with a branch, they were to smear some of that blood around the doorframe. Maybe they had stronger stomachs back then, but you do wonder, don't you, whether some of them wretched as they were doing it. But then, praise God, a more palatable experience, a pleasant aroma as the lamb was roasted, the promise of a, a satisfying and tasty meal, the, the savoury, juicy, tender, slightly sweet taste of roasted lamb, offset by the tang of, of bitter herbs perhaps horseradish or chicory. And not only the taste, but but the whole setting. It was to be eaten standing up, dressed and and ready to go. Even the unrisen bread, speaking of the the haste with which the exodus would happen when it finally came. Do you see? Do you perceive? Do you taste? Will you remember? Remember? This was not only to be a a memory prompt for the mind, but for the whole body, for the entire human experience. Year by year, as the ancient Israelites carried out the the commemorative Passover, each and every sense would have been engaged. They would have been transported back to that first night of salvation. They would have been reminded that, that the Exodus was not only a wonderful story to tell, but was a real account of a real, tangible, physical act. They were not simply to recall the Lord's salvation. They were commanded to taste, to see, to remember. To remember these events as the picture of who their God is. Of what it means for him to be Yahweh. To remember that this is our God. But hang on a minute, you might be thinking. That's a lovely idea, and it's all very well, but, but if we take this account in its entirety, is the Passover really a reminder of the goodness of God? Does this meal really lead us to to unqualified rejoicing? If this series of events reveals who Yahweh is, well, then is he really the kind of God we want to follow, to worship, to give our lives to? Is it good news that this is our God? Because, of course, there was another side to the Passover. For the ancient Israelites, yes, a a moment of celebration, of deliverance of freedom from centuries of oppression and suffering. But for the Egyptians, added to the riot of sensory experience of the sacrifice and the meal, added to all of that, was the screams. The screams of those who had not marked their houses with the blood of the Lamb. Even as the ancient Israelites savoured their roasted meat, the next-door neighbours were going through hell on earth. You wonder, did their heart-rending cries of anguish And pain drift across into the Israelite camp on that fateful night. Would that not cause our our feast to stick in our throats? In the years to come, as as they reenacted that night, would they think of those Egyptian families? How could they remember the Lord's goodness in that? How would that make them think of, of who their God is? How do we reckon with that as we come to this account today? Verse 29 of chapter 12. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. And the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night. And there was loud wailing in Egypt. For there was not a house without someone dead. The harrowing words, aren't they? And yet, I think if we take a moment to look really carefully at this passage, to consider exactly what was going on, well, well then I think we will find that these uncomfortable words lend a, a richness and a depth to our understanding of God's goodness that we wouldn't otherwise know. Even these jarring and upsetting verses add layers and and texture to our picture of who God is. All of these events serve to reveal God's character to us. Because, you see, the Exodus, well, it wasn't some great act of political emancipation. A wonderful example of the underdog overcoming impossible odds to stick it to the man. At least it wasn't primarily about that, no. The Exodus was primarily an act of God's judgment against sin. Coupled with an extraordinary outpouring of his gracious, merciful salvation. We've seen that all through the series so far, haven't we? The the Lord has brought about these events that he might be seen for who he truly is. And that the people he deals with might be seen for who they truly are. I wonder, did did you hear it as we listened earlier? In verse 13, just listen again. It's about the blood being a sign, but who is it a sign for? Verse 13, the Lord says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. The blood was a sign for the Israelites, of their safety, of God's provision for them. But who else? The Lord goes on, The blood will be a sign for you in the houses where you are and And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Do you see that the blood was also a sign for God? That he might see and and that he might pass over the Israelite families. We hear that again in, in verse 23. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and will pass over that doorway. The blood was a sign to God. And so when the ancient Israelites were to commemorate this great event in future years, and, and when the younger generations asked what they were celebrating, what was it they were to say? Well, don't look down just yet, because I'm going to read from verse 26, and I want you to finish the sentence. When your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them. It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and... And what? How would you finish that that description of the Exodus? And led us out of slavery to freedom? And ended the tyranny that we'd suffered for years? And brought us out to the land that he had promised us. Well all of those are true. Yahweh was indeed doing all of those things. But that's not how the scriptures end that verse. Tell them, verse 27, tell them it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. You see, the Exodus was was an act of God's judgment against sin. The issue for the Egyptians wasn't that they were Egyptian. It was that they had rebelled against Yahweh. They had failed to acknowledge him as, as creator and sustainer, Lord and King. They had gone chasing after other gods instead. But friends, they weren't the only ones. Tim Chester puts it wonderfully when he writes, the Israelites had to daub the blood on the doorposts precisely because they were as guilty as the Egyptians and so needed a substitute to die in their place if they were to avoid the judgment of death. The blood is daubed around the doors, not because God can't tell who is inside the house, but because he can. He knows there are sinners inside. You see, when it came to God's judgment against sin, the ancient Israelites were just as much in the firing line as the Egyptians. And yet they were spared. Why? Well, because of their faith in the means that Yahweh had provided. They were spared not because of their own righteousness, not because of their heritage but because they trusted in the sacrificial lamb. They took God at his word and they trusted in the blood. And so as they carried out the the sacrifice along with the, the grisly painting task, as they ate the bitter herbs as well as the lamb, even as they heard the screams, Of those devastated Egyptian parents, the gravity of the situation would have been hammered home for them. The just and right judgment of the Lord had fallen, and they had been spared. This was their God. A God who who will not leave cruelty and injustice unpunished. This was their God. A God who will forgive all those who trust in his way of salvation. Oh, how sweet that lamb must have tasted. You see, even the, even the bitter things in this world, even the struggles and hardships, the suffering and pain, the things that make our stomachs turn, even they can help us to see that the Lord is good. If only we will allow them to remind us of, of the wonderful grace, the undeserved kindness of our God living as we do in a world that is ravaged by sin and its effects, we will daily encounter those effects in our own lives. And when we do, will we allow them to add texture and and depth to our understanding of who God is and of his ways in this world? Will we allow the, the bitterness of our struggle and pain to highlight all the more? the sweetness of his good salvation, to throw into sharp relief the the mercy of our God that he has not left us without hope in this world. You see, there was not a house in Egypt that did not experience death that night. Some, the death of a child. Others, the death of a lamb in a child's place. And as those wails of grief drifted over to Israelite ears, they would have been confronted with just how severe the problem of sin is. This holy God, Yahweh, the true and living God, he will see justice done. And so they would have known in that moment just how great a mercy they had been shown in the substitution that had taken place in order to secure their salvation. The blood shed that they might go free. The blood of God's chosen sacrificial substitute. The blood of the Lamb. And so it is that, that we today are, are catapulted forward in time to another sacrifice, to another time that that blood was shed in order to secure salvation for an undeserving people. The death of of these lambs in ancient Egypt, the sacrifice of of each subsequent lamb at every Passover festival since, they all point towards one future, greater sacrifice. They all point towards the death of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. As he gave his life, spilled his blood. That we might shelter under his death. That we might be shielded from the death that we deserve. And that great sacrifice also comes with a memorial meal baked into our regular worship. Because Christians today are are not commanded to celebrate the Passover meal year by year, but we are commanded to share bread and wine with one another in communion regularly. This simple meal of, of bread and wine was given to us by God to be a lasting ordinance a meal of remembrance, a physical, tangible, edible reminder of the great Passover that those events in Egypt, the greater Passover that those events in Egypt pointed towards. And while a a Victoria sponge may briefly call to mind the sweet tooth of a long-dead monarch, this meal, like the Passover before it, does so much more. It, it bears his name, the Lord's Supper, but also in its very construction, it leads us to remember. To remember who our God is as we see his justice and mercy meet at the cross. And just like the Passover meal, this meal leads us to call to mind not only the sweetness of our salvation, but also to remember the more savoury reality of God's judgment. His right and good judgment over sin that has ruined his creation. Judgment deserved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and by Moses and the Israelites. Judgment Deserved by you and by me. But judgment taken, if we are in Christ. Judgment taken in our place by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ Himself. Let me encourage you in a moment as we share bread and wine together, let me encourage you to engage your senses as you see me tear the bread here at the front, uh, let it remind you of the flesh of our dear Saviour, torn as he was flogged, pierced by brutal nails, punctured by a Roman spear. And taste God's goodness as you see the judgment you deserved fall on him. And as you take the bread and eat it, we'll let that be to you a reminder of all the Lord's provision for you. Day by day, week by week, in his kindness, by his grace, he upholds and sustains your life. Taste and and see God's goodness in giving you life, in giving you breath, in giving you Christ and salvation, in giving you every good thing. And as you see the deep red wine, allow yourself to remember his blood. Shed for the forgiveness of sin. Shed as a sign for you and as a sign for God himself. Painted no longer on the doorposts, but dripping down that wooden cross. Speaking of our great God's righteous judgment and of his gracious mercy. And as you taste that that bittersweet wine, know that this is Yahweh our God. A God who is good, both in the trial and in the triumph. Our oh, friends, we are a forgetful people. But God, in his loving kindness, has given us this meal baked into our regular worship that we might be transported back, not to Egypt and the Exodus, but to Calvary and the cross, to his full and final salvation, And if you're here this evening and you don't yet know that salvation for yourself, if you're not trusting in the death of Jesus Christ in your place, then please let the bread and the wine pass you by. They're a reminder for those of us who are in him. But please do take this time to reflect on on what the Lord has been saying to us this evening. His just and right judgment will fall whether it falls on us, a a sinful and rebellious people, or whether it falls on his son in our place, will be determined by whether or not we will put our faith in God's chosen means of salvation. His Passover sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world.